Welcome to Gray Zone Radio. I'm your host and the editor of thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal. Today, I want to feature an excerpt of a conversation I just held with one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Rare Candy, and it's hosted by Glenn Rockney and Crypto Psy. They cover each week issues ranging from alternative health to science to international politics. And we held a wide-ranging, spontaneous conversation covering everything from the protests taking place from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Israel right now against Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reforms to the competing evils of America's billionaire class to the state of play in the Ukraine proxy war and the bombing of the Nord Stream pipelines, which is still said to be unsolved, even though it's pretty clear who's behind it. So take a listen. And so what, so you brought up Israel, you were, you were talking about, there's some, some protests going on there. Now I'm completely out of the, out of the loop on that. What is the deal with the protests? Yeah. yeah. For the prime minister's residence was raided two nights ago by, I mean, they pulled like a January six on him and yeah, like an entire crowd of protesters stormed the prime minister's residence two nights ago. Um, The streets are filled in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of people let's let's say at least tens of thousands of people Damn. they're all jewish they're all waving israeli flags but they're protesting the the most right-wing government in israel's history huh. and i wrote two books about israel palestine um one kind of predicted everything that was happening now and it was about how netanyahu had come in and this was a, a, a transitional point in israeli history that israel would from that point on be a right-wing country that would have no tolerance for any peace process or ending the occupation that it saw no difference between the settlements in the west bank and what where the jewish israeli population lives in so-called israel proper and that the um religious nationalist elements would eventually take over because the occupation had been going on so long and so and every israeli male female at age 18 has to be uh, serving in the army and gets indoctrinated at an early age to participate in army culture. So the whole society is basically mobilized for this permanent occupation. And what kind of politics is that going to produce? It's going to produce a militaristic, nationalistic politics where more and more of the population becomes extremely religious, which means like the base of Israel's support, which are liberal Jews in the US, are going to be pretty alienated. So what we're seeing now is, I mean, I wouldn't call it the culmination, but it's like uh, acceleration of the process that I described in my book, where Netanyahu has come in with a coalition um, in order for him to, you know, it's a parliamentary system. So you have to get like this guy who got like four seats and this guy got three seats and this lady got 12 seats and this, this weird party gets eight seats. So like the weird party in his coalition, there are several of them. One is and weird by you know liberal democratic standards, it's an ultra orthodox party. They don't want to serve in the military. They don't really want to. The men don't really work. They study Torah all day, and they get they get tons of tax dollars. Why? Because they need Jewish bodies there to outnumber the Palestinians, and they make tons of babies. They shoot babies out like t-shirt guns, wow. and so that 
helps them with the demographic situation. So the ultra-Orthodox have a lot of power in Israel, but a, a whole part of the society hates them. The part of the society that's secular, serves in the military, resents them. Then you have these fanatical settler parties. This one party is called Jewish power. It's like mm. basically the equivalent of white power. Uh, I've you know interacted with them. I filmed them. If you go on YouTube, if you're listening to this, watch a video I made with um, an Israeli journalist named David Sheen called Israel's New Racism. And we basically followed a group from this party as they rioted. They carried out a pogrom against a community of African migrants in Tel Aviv and just were like, spitting on pregnant African women and, mm. you know, carrying out like, it was like something out of Nazi Germany in the thirties. And we were just standing there filming it. And then the, in the end they attack us. It's all there. It's got millions of views. I think it has like 5 million, 8 million views. Um, actually I had an African neighbor in Jersey city where I was living when I produced that. And she, she just came up and she's like, you made that video. Everybody in Africa is watching it. So <laughs> this party is like, it's it's like if you if you think about how much Israel puts into propaganda, into convincing the world that it's this great democracy, then you have this party of Jew Jewish Nazis in the coalition because Netanyahu it was the only way Netanyahu could come in, back into power is to get those four seats, hmm. and they control one of the major security ministries, which means they have control over the national police, and the other person in the party who's advocated. Bezalel Smotrich, he's advocated separating maternity wards between Jewish and non-Jewish in hospitals. He is the finance minister, so he can control, he's just sending money to the settlements and to his fanatical buddies. So then Netanyahu himself, he's been in, he's the longest serving prime minister in forever, the longest serving prime minister. And he has all these corruption scandals, so many corruption scandals, I can't even count. And there's just hilarious um, audio tapes of his sons who are like the ultimate fail sons uh -huh. uh, bragging about how like they can get some oligarch on the line who will pay for them to like um, tip strippers all night because their dad cut a gas deal with them. It's just like that they, 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 Netanyahu is accused of siphoning off money from like German Holocaust reparations. And so what he wants to do is he's doing this legal reform that the settlers all support. And they're going to weaken the power of the Supreme Court. And so the liberal, enlightened part of Israeli society that is the minority is basically waging kind of a color revolution and trying to overthrow Netanyahu by refusing to participate. They've done a general strike for the first time in like 30 years. The military reservists, especially in the Air Force, because that's where the like you would call them the Ashkenazi elite. Like I'm an Ashkenazi Jew because I'm, I'm I'm white and I'm from Europe, right. European descent. So they're the elite of Israeli society. They are refusing to participate in the military now over this. And then at the heart of it is the Supreme Court, which is the considered sort of the protector of liberal Israeli society. And it's the part that like American liberal Jews who still believe in Israel really revere. Like um, Elena Kagan, the Supreme Court justice, her mentor was the Israeli former chief justice, Aharon Barak, who ushered in these kind of liberal laws that are non-binding called the basic laws that Netanyahu wants to roll back. So the point, there are a few points here. The first point is, this is about, this is like liberal Israeli society's last stand. The second point is liberal Israeli society is deeply connected to the Democratic Party 
and to liberal Jewish institutions in the U.S., which are in many ways sponsoring or supporting these protests. And number three, liberal Israeli society is deeply racist and responsible for the occupation and has no interest in ending, doing anything to address the horror that Palestinians are living through. And Palestinians are put on the sidelines. This isn't about, you know, helping Palestinians end the occupation. This isn't about human rights for them. This is about an internal fight among a culture war inside Israel. And uh, it's and so what the position I take is that what Netanyahu is doing is showing the real face of Israel that Palestinians have always understood and seen ever since 1948 and before when they were removed from their land at gunpoint and laws were ushered in under supposedly socialist governments in Israel. It was socialism for Jews only that would literally illegalize Palestinians from returning to their own homes and place the homes in the hands of the, of the government. And then the government would give out those homes to Jews, including um, Jews from the displaced persons camps in Europe who had lived through the Holocaust. There are stories of Jews coming from those camps coming to Palestinian homes and just taking the silverware or the dishes that the Palestinians had left as their own because they came with nothing. And that's the liberal Israel. The liberal Israel is the, the pilots who are refusing to participate in the military because of Netanyahu's judicial reforms, going and bombing uh, entire multifamily homes in the Gaza Strip with precision guided missiles following orders to exterminate entire families because the father belongs to the wrong political faction. He belongs to Hamas. That's liberal Israel. So I've, I mean, the sympathy I have for them is, is none. And what they're trying to do is get back to a time when Israel could continue slaughtering Palestinians, displacing them and occupying them and tell the world that it's a real democracy. And Netanyahu is just, and his Netanyahu's base is like, we can't be a democracy. We're just, we're for Jews. We're for Jewish power. And that's right. the way uh, politics across the West is going. I mean, if you look at, you know, European politics, people are getting more and more nationalistic and they're getting fed up with all of these um, liberal institutions. So um, that's the way I see those protests. So do you, do you think, so in terms of like nationalism, I, I'd like to, because, because it does seem like nationalism now, there are people that kind of retreat or kind of, not, when you look at what our society is like a very global society, like we have a global economy, you know, with COVID happening, there was a lot of global talk with 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 all that without getting too far into that. I guess what I mean is, do you do you almost can you understand why some people are like, well, nationalism, that makes more sense. You know what I mean? Why people maybe yeah, reactively might understand like, hey, I don't like this whole like global free trade thing that ruins my economy. My you know what I mean? That the the bad trade deals from the Clinton administration and stuff. Do you under, can you maybe sympathize why some people might be not racially nationalistic, but almost just territorially at least? Well, there are different kinds of nationalism. It depends on what kind of country you have. Like the national narrative of the U.S., is not, <clears throat> at least since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but also just the way that most Americans, including people, many people who voted for Trump understand it is not that it is, you know, a country exclusively for white Christian people. Although I think mm -hmm. many people who support Trump might feel that way or be upset that right. it's changing, but there are different kinds of nationalism. And there's a concept of sovereignty that is at the heart of, for example, Latin American socialism. Cuban socialism, 
Venezuelan socialism. It's all about sovereignty, the right to defend your own, to control your, or, uh, you know, African revolutionary leaders like Patrice Lumumba, the right to control your own resources, profit from them and provide the profits to your people, your constituents. That's a form of mm -hmm. nationalism. Uh -huh. Palestinian nationalism, they've been denied the ability to have a nation. So they are citizens of nowhere, which means they have no formal rights. And so Palestinian nationalism is a constant fight. In many ways, it's an armed guerrilla fight to force Israel to recede from their territory so they can have land in order to have a nation. And Palestinian nationalism is the most demonized form of nationalism in the world. I think if many um, America firsters in the U.S. would understand what who Palestinians are, that they are an agricultural farm-based people who have been fighting this Red Dawn-style fight against mm. an occupying, invading force for their land. That they would, and that they are their tradition, their traditional culture. They're also fighting for their traditional culture. Uh -huh. That they would identify with them more. Israeli yeah. nationalism is entirely based around the concept that Jews comprise a nation, that a religion comprises a nation, mm -hmm. and that the nation must be representative exclusively of that of members of that religion. And so everybody else who exists within the realm of that nation cannot have formal rights or their rights are severely weakened like the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Mm. Um, so, I, I mean, that's not a form of nationalism I can get behind. So the question is, what is the national narrative? But what you're talking about also is, is sovereignty. And yeah, more and more mm -hmm. people are seeing, for example, I'm very sympathetic to the migrants who go to Europe because they have nowhere else to go. But I, I also mm -hmm. have to um, feel sorry for Europeans who are having their pensions reduced and taken away. And all of a sudden, they're, while their governments are giving weapons to jihadists in Syria and creating a humanitarian catastrophe, people from that country come and then they have to, um, mm -hmm. you know, pay for these um, migrant centers. And like, I mean, Germany welcomed a million migrants while mm -hmm. the German workers saw their quality of life declining rapidly. And so the answer there is stop bombing those countries, stop right. flooding them with weapons or in, in our case, stop passing these free trade deals and giving these jobs away. I mean, the the anti-immigrant sentiment that you you can just you can feel in in so many uh, you know border communities across the U.S. I spent a ton of time on the border on both sides. It it coincided directly with NAFTA and like what I saw yeah. in the first article I ever did actually. Um, when I was getting into journalism, I went to Ciudad Juarez on the Mexican side of the um, uh, El Paso border from the other side of El Paso. El Paso was one of the safest cities in America at the time I went there. It was like 2002 when I went and Juarez was experiencing a wave of serial killings of women. And I went with families who were looking for their daughters uh, outside town. Uh, just they would go every weekend to look for their daughter's bodies. And I went to um, a pit which had been a mass grave that nine girls had just been found in and no one knew who was killing them or what was killing them but who were they they were all young women who had come alone 
to this giant city to work in the maquiadoras or the sweatshops being set up by US corporations that moved across the border overnight. And El Paso was actually deteriorating because it lost its Levi's plant, which was like where the, the blue collar, the blue collar population of El Paso, like you could all get it, you could always get a job at this massive Levi's plant okay. and have like a stable life. And that just went away overnight. It went to the other side of the border and then horror erupted. So of course I identify with that. And like the term globalist, it is associated with uh, anti-Semitism. But what right. do we call Bill Gates? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Here's yeah. the guy who simultaneously. Like, well, I got some names I could call him, but I don't think we want to air him, you know. I, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he's not like, you know, we, you know, people, a lot of people I'm around, they're anti imperialist. So they have this understanding of imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism and it represents yeah. the West. Um, but, and so you have like imperialist billionaires like George Soros, who are actually trying to carry out regime change operations in former <laughs> socialist countries, open up their economies and then come in and, and pillage. I mean, he's it's like kind of a stereotype and he works with the CIA to do so. But then you got Bill Gates, Bill Gates, you know, he funds, he, and you know, he's heavily involved in U.S. politics, the largest landowner in America. He don't, mm -hmm. He's donated 350 million to U.S. media. He's highly influential here, but he's also friends with Xi Jinping in China. Right. He's close to the Chinese government. He's not hostile to them. So that would an imperialist like George Soros wants to topple the Chinese government. Soros said that. So what is Bill Gates? Uh -huh. What do we call him? I mean, I think that the term globalist would apply to him pretty well. He sees no national borders, is loyal to no country. And only wants power for he essentially wants world control for him, himself yeah. and his quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's funny because we talk about this a lot on the podcast with billionaires, where like globalists is the term that kind of right wingers are using now and have used in the past, whereas imperialism, that's like the leftist term. Yeah. And you know, like the leftists are really scared of saying anything bad about Soros or even Bill Gates because that's a that you're a chud if you do that right right wing yeah. right yeah, yeah. uh-huh but but mark cuban fair game like critic critique him you know like all elon richard branson elon yeah exactly so it's it's funny they're all it's all the same thing yeah it's it's interesting where are you saying Glenn? no i i just i just mean in, in a sense like yeah it's it's people are afraid uh, just going off what you said people are afraid to just call evil evil and you know to me i just call bill gates evil like like i get it you want to attach kind of like a you know a a, a term like a big geopolitical term to him because it, it does it is helpful to do that when you get into the, like a lot of high level conversations but i look at what he does and it's just like man it, it's evil stuff why does he need all that farmland you see what he's do doing with it what the last three years I mean, the guy the guy was basically on the right side of the last three years, which many Americans are now finally waking up to, at least, though it's not the number I want it to be as kind of like a reset. Right. I, I mean, I don't want to uh, that term's even beaten to a pulp. So it's like, what else do you call Bill Gates? Right. It's that's that's what, yeah. that's what I say. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, there isn't much left opposition to Bill Gates. Uh, it isn't like as ferocious as it should be. I mean, here's someone who he's he clearly is buying up all the land so he can control the means of production and food supply. Mm -hmm. And one man with that level of control through a series of companies should be the target, like the ultimate target of 
yeah. uh, the socialist left, but you don't hear that much about him. And then George Soros, you're always told you're an anti-Semite if you criticize <laughs> yeah. George Soros. Yeah. But the, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, uh, if mm -hmm. you talk about things that the Open Society Foundations actually fund, okay, why are we equating George Soros with Judaism? If we do that, we are denigrating Judaism and Jews because, I mean, he essentially, he's he's not as bad as Sheldon Adelson, but he's kind of an anti-Semitic stereotype. Uh, and so we should be, you know, criticizing him as someone who is, you know, not representative of Jews, but like everyone, every single one of his defenders calls you an anti-Semite if you say anything about him right. writing in the New York Review of Books, for example, which he funds and helps con and, and influences, that the U.S. should topple the Syrian government by force. Like I can't mm -hmm. criticize, if I criticize that, I'm an anti-Semite. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, Soros keeps coming up in our work at the Gray Zone because he funds everything we're exposing alongside the CIA. It's like the classic CIA modus operandi where he they cannot directly fund civil society organizations that are trying to topple a government that the U.S. wants removed. So they go to their billionaire proxies like Soros, who was identified in a 1991 Washington Post article by David Ignatius as a overt operator on behalf of the CIA. He wrote that Soros and the National Endowment for Democracy are doing what the CIA used to do in secret overtly. And so it's right mm -hmm. there in the Washington Post. And so I'm not allowed to criticize that. But mm -hmm. Elon, I mean, that's just so... Yeah. It's it's, it, it's like we can only criticize the, the like more buffoonish billionaires. Who right. Like, it's, yeah. the, it's the... Which, I, to be honest, I tend to... And, and this is not a defense of Elon Musk because I've, I've seen the early... I being a Silicon Valley, you know, resident and stuff, I've seen the, you know, the uh, the rise of Elon Musk and I've never been a fan. However, it's just like the eccentric, you know, making outlandish statement billionaire in public to me is more of a natural I have a bunch of money rather type of thing rather than like actually you'll never see me you know george soros actually my son i think it's alex or something his son yeah. uh, will have his instagram where he's like just watching the ducks with my dad out on the lake yeah, you know that like that's like that. like yeah. just like he has those like you know things it's all this like secret like you know you'll never know who this guy is you'll never know that like even bill gates shows his face you know, he's yeah. weird and awkward and annoying, but like he shows his face. He'll go on 60 minutes. He'll go on these and that like Soros. You never see this guy. So I think the mis mystery behind these big my Sheldon Adelson, all these guys, these big money guys. That's the scary thing is when you don't see them making the weird outlandish thing right. like that. That's when things start right. to get weird. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Soros, he's just not a very appealing character. He's also no. very old, but he has like a thick Hungarian accent and he just comes off like a, a stereotype. It's just so he's probably been advised not to talk. Sheldon Adelson, I mean, what is he? He's someone who said he was he he resented uh, or he, he was sorry that he served in the U.S. military or the U.S. Army when he was younger. He wished he had served in the Israeli army. <laughs> his, whole, his entire mission is to guide uh, U.S. policy in support of Israel's right wing and have a war with Iran. He said publicly that he that the U.S. should drop a nuclear weapon on Iran, and yet he's operating in the inner sanctum of American politics. That you know, 
<laughs> you would think there would have been more alarm about that, but instead we're, we're we always we hear about these random guys who have some Russian heritage. Actually, most of them are, are dual Israeli citizens who are um, forcing or who are influencing Trump to do Russia's bidding. Like all we heard about during Russia Gate were these random guys I'd never heard of before. Gordanchenko uh, oh. and Felix Sater and um, I mean, no American could even keep track of all the names. And it was to convince us that Trump was a Russian asset. Meanwhile, Sheldon Adelson right. sitting right in the front row and Trump's giving a speech next to Netanyahu telling him like, we, I'm giving you money to have a war with Iran. <laughs> and no, and then like the press is like, we're, we're not going to tell you who that guy is. <laughs> yeah. And he, he funded, I, I think he funded, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, Las Vegas Raiders fan. And, and he, he, uh, I think he like was, was the big money behind the, the stadium out there too. And I remember seeing that name. I'm like, yeah. dude, come on. Yeah. Really? Like, I didn't look, I know, I know that funding's always going to come from someone I probably don't care for, but it's just funny to see. Cause the, the, the Davis family is one of the few football ownership families where like their only asset is football. It's not yeah. like Johnson, Woody Johnson, <laughs> yeah, you know, Kraft. or, or right. yeah, Kraft, like all those guys. It's like, no, we're just, we just bought a football team when it was really cheap. So yeah. therefore, therefore we have this, um, but yeah, it's like seeing Adelson's name on there. It's just like, man, they get, they get and Al Davis and was always the bad guy, you know, yeah. historically yeah. in football. Well, and Woody like Johnson. Yeah. I mean, how many like yeah. Woody Johnson's just running around, like, like paralyzing people's faces and, you know, <laughs> uh, Bob, Bob Kraft completely sinister character but you know it's al davis yeah. the big bad al davis with his dark shade yeah. have you been in yeah. a venetian, by the way what's that have you been to the venetian the adelson hotel uh, i have casino? yes i absolutely it's have. actually kind of cool oh it's awesome he's got good taste i'm not gonna say he does. the stadium's <laughs> cool too i mean the stadium's yeah. great too hey i mean like like i said like when elon bought tw when elon bought twitter or something like i don't care for elon's car product I don't care for a lot of the stuff that that he does. I didn't, you know, th there's some things I thought was okay, like not turning his Tesla factory into a ventilator factory for a <laughs> month. I thought was a, a wise decision by him. But like the the idea that, um, you know, when I was like, oh man, it would be really cool if he literally just concentrated on only Twitter. That would just be cool to me. Because yeah. like, honestly, I don't have to use, I mean, yeah, I understand it's a really good, big, part it's a weird thing when they want to control free speech but twitter was always owned by a billionaire so who cares like yeah. it's not it, that's not moving the needle to me <laughs> you all would have been under the old regime i think it was only a matter of time before you all were banned yeah, I, we we were uh i mean for a while it was like you know we were kind of just under that threshold of like not the big name so it's okay but for a while i got warnings i mean definitely shadow banned to the point where i was like but then all of a sudden elon took over and people start seeing what i post again i'm not that doesn't mean i'm an elon fan but i doesn't mean that uh, you know when he owns it maybe the, personally for me it's better um for the people who were actually right about things and i do see people still getting censored under elon's thing like people that are saying good things so it's not it's not to say that he created right. this free speech platform because you never will it's that it's a monetized platform like that's never going to be free speech i mean it's always going to serve some sort of interest it's gray zone radio i'm your host max blumenthal you've been listening to my wide-ranging and spontaneous conversation with the podcast rare candy about everything from Israel's protests to America's billionaire class to the Ukraine proxy war. Let's jump back in.
I mean, he did one thing that I will be forever grateful for. I would shake his hand for it. And it's the Twitter files. Like it confirmed yeah. so much of what we'd been saying yeah. on Twitter. That was incredible. At the gray zone, which is that the intelligence agencies were controlling social media and censoring dissent. And it's, it, it you know, the Jim Jordan hearing in mm -hmm. the House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. I don't, you know, obviously there's some cynicism behind it, some partisan politics guiding what Jordan is doing, but bringing Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger there to expose how in the intelligence agencies, the FBI, and the, the government agencies down to, you know, the CDC had been censoring factual content and blocking and banning people for simply disagreeing with the political establishment and the Biden administration was as important as anything that was done during the church committee, because these are our digital commons. This is where the Twitter is as important as having a telephone in the 1950s at this point, or, or any social media platform. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. and, and the enemy of humanity is the are these intelligence agencies they're and they're they're operating in a completely opaque undemocratic fashion so i think elon com contributed something to humanity there uh almost made yeah. up for all the government money he took for spacex to blow up a bunch of fancy objects in the sky <laughs> yeah that's what i mean it's like to me hey man if you want to laser focus on that i have no problem with that i because I, I i know for a while he was like I, am i going to collapse you know my am i going to do space or am i going to do cars am i going to do it's like that it's like hey why don't you just do social media i have no problem with that like i i have i i know i can navigate throughout that through that i know i can look at a, maybe a few posts that might hurt my feelings a little bit you know because i've used twitter before 2016 so i i would be able to to do that and navigate throughout that world because it was headed to a point where it was really feeling like just that true mass formation psychosis but with as an enforceable law by by social media companies and it's it was uh i'm, I'm glad that it that it, we seem to be out of that in a in in a way you know yeah. it was like you look at the right side of your screen under the old regime and there would just be like fact check it's like yeah something mm -hmm. that is clearly true that upsets the establishment is is mostly untrue and right. then you know all these nudge messages like getting vaccinated improves your uh, like reduces your risk of car accidents by 13 percent <laughs> yeah yeah yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, on that note, I, I got we got to revisit Ukraine. I know you've been talking about this a yeah. lot, but to be to be honest, I mean, you know, like you you came on here, like I said a year ago, laid out the whole plan, and it to to say, are you are you shocked? Was it worse than you thought, or did you? Is it about as bad? <laughs> I actually uh, I thought it would. In the, I got a, a few things wrong in the beginning. I thought it would end more quickly right. with some kind of negotiations over the Donbass region, which is just almost entirely ethnic Russian at this point. Uh, why would Ukraine need or want that? And the West came in and sabotaged the negotiations that were clearly going to take place in April. And mm -hmm. so it led to a kind of a bloodbath because Russia had sent in a large convoy, lots of uh, infantry and cavalry towards the Kiev Oblast, which is at the center of Ukraine along the Dnipro River. And they didn't go, had no, I, they had no intention of going into this major city and having like grinding urban combat. It would have been terrible for them. But 
the idea was that it would frighten Ukraine into coming to the table to see that much Russian armor and infantry there. And instead, what happened was Boris Johnson came in as Zelensky was preparing to go to the negotiating table and said, we're going to give you tons of weapons. We're going to give you tons of um, aid. We're going to basically fund your entire government, prop up your country, and we're going to make you an international hero. And, you know, you are an actor. Your ego is going to be stroked for the rest of time if you just continue this war. And the Ukrainian military is pretty good. And they had these Javelin missiles that could take out Russian armor that the U.S. provided. And so they went in and, and they fought. They lost a lot of men, but so did Russia. And the war just intensified. It, it continued to grind on. But I always knew that Ukraine would eventually run out of men, run out of material. And the West politically was not in a place where it could just have another endless proxy war. And that's where we are right now. Ukraine is just, just they're, they're falling apart. Their military is falling apart before our eyes. And their experienced soldiers have all been killed, which is a huge tragedy. Uh, they could have all been alive. Right. And I think it will wind, it will end up the way that it could have been if there had been negotiations in April, 2022, hmm. which is that there will be some settlement over Crimea and the Eastern part of the country. Yeah. yeah. That's it. It's, it's nuts. Cause it's just like every day, you know, and, and this is something like we, we defer to you on, on certain things like this. It's not something I'm well-versed in or anything, but I, I do know one thing when I see huge amounts of money where you'll just see these like headlines um, every celebrity jumping in, like we're, I have a funny story to share a little bit later, but like, like every celebrity jumping in saying, we need to, we need to mobilize Ukraine, help mobilize Ukraine. They need our help. They need our help. But then you'll see like, well, Biden's offering X amount of billion of dollars to them. And Zelensky's like, that's it. Can, can I get it? Yeah. Can we, can we ramp that up? Like, it's like a shark tank negotiation almost like, and uh, you know, and, and then it's like just seeing that amount of money in a time where just two years ago, people were losing their businesses. People were yep. Um, yep. often losing their houses or just anything like that. Uh, even people that were owning property weren't able to collect rent. So you just see an overall just collapse of people below all these elected officials really fighting each other. But we're supposed to just we're supposed to just deeply hope that Ukraine gets the money, gets our money. We're supposed to deeply hope that they get that. It's just so sad. Yeah, yeah I mean Ted Nugent. I don't know if you saw it, like a few days ago <laughs> yeah, Trump rally. <laughs> he just like. He was like, where's all my money going? I don't want my money going to some homosexual in Kiev. And I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean, you didn't need to say it like that. And, uh, you know, you're yeah. Ted Nugent and psycho, but the whole crowd is just going nuts. They're, they're not down with it. And, you know, 20 years ago, these people would have been like, let's get Bin Laden and Saddam. Right. My right. thing. Now they're not into it anymore. Yeah. And that to me is a very positive development because those people saw yeah. the that the moral injury that was caused by, I mean, they, they felt it in middle America, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they knew people whose legs were blown off, who had been yeah. driven to suicide, uh, who had simply died better th than a lot of people on the coast. Although like LA, California, the Chicano areas, they have like some of the highest enlistment rates. But mm. the point is that they, they're, they're not, they're not primed for these kinds of, psychotic wars anymore. The uh, US economy is not growing and producing the same kind of um, prosperity as it used to. So they're not feeling that. 
And so this is an education for many people in the US who never read Noam Chomsky and checked his footnotes on what the empire really is. And I think it's a turning point where you have these psychopaths around Joe Biden, these neoconservative, neoliberal ideologues who are guiding his foreign policy, Victoria Newland, Jake Sullivan, and Anthony Blinken. And they want to actually use this proxy war as a springboard to wage war on China over Taiwan. And then you have like the Marines, officer level Marines have no interest in doing that. Uh, and you have veterans and you have uh, Red America who are just, they're just not gonna be on board for it at all, at all. And the military is having its greatest recruitment crisis in history and openly says it. So where is this taking us? It's taking us to an internal crisis because the post-war US has thrived on its ability to constantly wage these very profitable wars without any consequence back home, politically or otherwise. I mean, we saw Vietnam, there were some serious political consequences. And so they got rid of the draft. Then Iraq, well, we just got rid of George W. Bush and continued being in Iraq. Yeah. Here, I think we've reached kind of a, term, a, a terminal point. Yeah. Yeah. The trust, the trust doesn't seem to be there. Like the trust doesn't, I mean, amongst the, you know, people who basically clockwork orange themselves to have, you know, liberal news networks on, uh, pupping, yeah. you know, propping up Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Those people, I don't, they're beyond, I, sadly they're in my family, but they, you know, yeah. those people, I don't ever want to talk politics with them again. I literally just want to talk, like almost have like dementia style conversations with them where it's very like, <laughs> Like, like, no, I, I, it sounds rude, but it's just like, I don't ever want anything to get serious around them again, because I know that they, we, we just don't agree anymore. But for the overall, I mean, we're just not getting the benefits of like, you know, wartime us, like where you'd get jobs created for it. You'd get all these certain things. Like we don't get those benefits of it. It's like, even after the Iraq right. war, whoever supported it, who didn't, there's a housing collapse a couple of years later after that. Like there's, there's all these, like the benefits aren't there from this. And, and it's like, you know, now you just watch celebrities like it's it's all just it's like a celebrity war it's the weirdest thing with with uh with ukraine like just yeah. today this came out yeah. i don't know if you saw this max but it just came out that mark hamill uh luke skywalker uh lends star wars voice to ukrainian air raid app so basically uh, you, you, uh so essentially like ukrainians can get their app on their phone and mark hamill he doesn't warn them of airstrikes, which that would be insane, but like he doesn't warn them of airstrikes, but he says things like, don't be careless. Your overconfidence is your weakness. So he's basically telling them to keep their head on a swivel. Like this is, I'm sorry, it's like a Reddit war. Like it's weird. Like it's yeah. like, I'm not trying to downplay anything that's happened. I, I know that there's horrible violence that's happening. I don't sit here saying, come on, Russia, do this. Yeah, do this. But I know that like for me, the whole Ukraine side of it and just my country, which has never really been honest with me in my life, but in the last three years has decided to ramp up the lying to a degree that is so jarring that it hurts to even talk about sometimes when that happens. Like I just, I tend to be like, man, let's just stop. Just stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mark Hamill. I mean, who has heard of Mark Hamill since star Wars? This is, you see all these washed up actors like Orlando Bloom went to meet yeah. with Zelensky yesterday. It's like anyone who can meet with Zelensky, it's a career boost because he's one of the most famous actors in the world. And Mark Hamill was previously raising weapons for the Ukrainian military. He's raising money for, for weapons, uh. um, which means, you know, he's raising money for U.S. weapons manufacturers. But mm -hmm. the air raids are not really 
you know, there are, Ukrainian cities are not really experiencing air raids right now. Like it's not like the battle of Britain and people are huddled in the subways. Most of the fighting, if not all the fighting is in the East, the fighting is over a series of population centers and the Ukrainian military. Well, first of all, the Ukrainian military police are running around cities hunting any male of military age, which could be between 16 and 50. And they wrap them up and bundle them into a van and drive them off. And then they send them to the front. And you've got little kids and old men being sent to the front because all the experienced fighters are being killed in cities like Bakhmut. And the and Zelensky keeps reinforcing his forces there, even though they have clearly lost, they're overwhelmed. They're in a basically a cauldron, which means they're surrounded by Russian artillery units and they're running out of supply lines. And why is he doing it? It's because he needs to convince the West to send more money and send more weapons that the battle is still being won. And the press is trying to crank it up, but the you can see seeping out into the Washington Post and the New York Times headlines, uh, Ukraine is running out of men, running out of munitions. They're starting to admit that it's falling apart. So why? Why yeah. do we stand by if we care so much about Ukraine and all these liberals have Ukrainian flags fluttering over their homes? If they care so much, then why do they continue to oppose negotiations that right. would end the slaughter? Because they're just being sent into a, a wood chipper of death. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And it's like and it's because and it's they're whole... being lied to. They they just because, yeah. like you said, the people you know, they're they're ingesting blue and on MSNBC Clockwork Orange style propaganda about victory, and although victory is never defined. And I mean, <laughs> if you can, yeah, if you want to get to the core of how delusional these people are, and we we all have them in our lives, if we we know liberals and we care about our liberal family members or friends, you know, you live in a mm -hmm big city, you're going to meet them. Ask yeah. them, do they think Joe Biden should run again? Or how is Joe Biden doing? Yeah. And I mean, to a person, they will say, I think he's doing pretty well. And like, does he have dementia? Like, what are you talking about? That's like a right wing talking point. Yeah. Like, right. It's staring yeah. you right in the face. The president is like late stage Reagan or worse. He's just babbling, yeah. drooling. You yeah. know, he, yeah, there was a mass shooting yesterday and he was talking about giving chocolate out to kids. Yeah, the press conference, <laughs> shaking hands of people that aren't Hold there. On, let him yeah. let him cook. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. The right understands that there's a deep state, but everyone like the 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 liberals, blue and on, they think Biden's in charge. Like he's actually like yeah. calling the shots. Yeah. Yeah, and liberals think the deep state is like their garbage man that voted for Trump too. That's like the sad the the sad part about it all is like it's like you guys like have like have such like low aspirations for what like you know behind the scenes actually is. Like they think it's like this network of like like they actually like it's weird like they hate QAnon but they think QAnon is actually real like they think QAnon like Trump actually yeah. like sends yeah. signals to like the people down you know like they 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 send say like Trump sends these like weird like brainwave signals and like all these like random guys with shovels in their hands and high visibility vests on just look up in the sky and they're going like okay yeah Trump I got it we'll we'll do that we'll, you yeah. know we'll do another terrible event or something like and it's it's just it's just delusion I mean it's what happens when you're locked in your house for a couple years and all you watched was the news and yeah. one form of news therefore like those people like you thought you're only alive because you did that so therefore anything they say after that yeah well they also they also think everything's q like 
this guy thinks that America blew up the pipeline that's QAnon, you know? Yeah, good point. Which is, I, yeah. I know that's old news, but I wanted to talk, What I, didn't, I never talked to you about that, the pipeline thing. That seemed to kind of get glossed over, even though it was big news. Like, that seems crazy to me. Like, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage has been great for America's elite. It's been yeah. great for U.S. geopolitical power. And so that was another reason that the U.S., wanted to keep this war going, or at least the people around Biden, but also the people around Ted Cruz uh, in Texas, the, the LNG people, the you know domestic oil and gas producers. Because mm. think about it from their point of view. All right, you're, you're funding Germany's military through NATO and helping them defray the costs of their social democracy. We have none here. And at the same time, they're building this pipeline with Russia where Russia is going to supply cheap natural gas to them to heat their homes. And they're not buying your liquid natural gas from Texas, which provides all the jobs there. Everyone's working hard there, capping the wells, building their, you know, facilities. Germany should buy from us. And then think about it from the point of view of like a Washington neocon. Russia is, has some of the most, is one of the most resource rich countries on the planet. Germany has some of the most, advanced technical know-how and industry on the planet. And the two of them are getting together, connecting physically through a pipeline that will also produce political ties, which will take Germany further away from the US orbit and bring technological know-how together with rich natural resources and it will weaken you. It's like uh, Big New Brzezinski's grand chessboard, which really explains the overarching theory and strategy of American empire. That's your nightmare is Germany and Russia get together. And then Russia's getting together with China. So you're losing the whole Eurasian continent. So you've got to blow up that pipeline and you have mm. perfect cover to do so with this war. And so what do you, you blow it up and then you blame Russia for blowing up its own pipeline. Yeah. And um, was that Seymour Hirsch that that eventually like I I know I don't know if he was the first guy to say it, but it seems like that's who got everybody riled up about suggesting yeah. that that it, that it happened. I mean, he he kind of caught a lot of flack for that. Yeah. Well, it's like the, the Beltway Press, the U.S. press is so disciplined that they will never apply pressure or scrutiny on the worst act of industrial sabotage in history, which was also a huge environmental catastrophe. All this methane <laughs> gas went up into the atmosphere and all the environmental yeah. groups were like, well, well, let's look the other way because we're totally controlled and funded by Mike Bloomberg. And, yeah. you know, so there wasn't any pressure on the administration after this took place. Then Seymour Hirsch, the most famous investigative journalist alive, who exposed everything from the My Lai massacre to the Abu Ghraib torture scandal, mm-hmm. comes forward with a Substack article with a well-placed source explaining how this operation took place, how it was authorized by the CIA and ultimately by Biden. And it was carried out by divers trained in Panama City, Florida. And it took place under the cover of the Balt Ops U.S. naval exercises in the Baltic Sea. It all kind of fit with how I understood it could have taken place. And he may have gotten, uh, there may, there may have been some things that he didn't get right, but he basically explained what everyone knew to be true. And it forced a response and the response was hilarious 
First, the New York Times publishes a piece based on controlled leaks provided by the administration or U.S. intelligence claiming that a pro-Ukrainian group had actually done it, not the U.S., but a pro-Ukrainian group. So they dropped the lie about Russia doing it, and they said a pro-Ukrainian mm -hmm. group, some private operators. Private operators. And, and they finally yeah. mentioned Seymour Hersh's article in the New York Times in the 23rd paragraph wow. uh, as the means of dismissing it. Uh, then Germany starts its own operation, its own PSYOP. And this is after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz had just returned from Washington. They say that a pro-Ukrainian group of private Ukrainians in a pleasure yacht called the Andromeda carried explosives <laughs> across the Polish border by land to Germany, then embarked, disembarked from Rostock, Germany, to the Baltic Sea in a literal pleasure yacht, and then dove to the deepest part somehow of the Nord Stream pipelines and attached massive amounts of explosives that were capable of blasting through rebar and concrete reinforcements. And then they were able to come up without massive oxygen tanks or a decompression chamber to this pleasure yacht and escape in one of the most heavily surveilled parts of the world. And also somehow they knew where the pipelines were. Even yeah, though they that's my thing. Government. Yeah. Well, like it's in the, it's like, like you, it's off the grid damn near. Like if you're, if you were to just be searching, like you're like, I don't know where this is. Like the technology, I mean, but again, the way people believe that is these are people that think like the Kennedy assassination, just Lee Harvey Oswald, one guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah look how we got it done. And great and great, insane thing how that got done. Like, it's like all the, we're always taught that it's just this one, like Marvel villain that takes out yeah. this one thing. It's never us. Wouldn't be us. You yeah. know, yeah, even though that's often the, the twist, even in the Marvel movie is it actually it went is. His head. Yeah. <laughs> his head went back and to the right. And then yeah. it went, it turned around and took a U-turn and went into John Connolly's mm -hmm. chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally. And I don't know if you've ever been to Dealey Plaza. You got to go. Okay. So you, you can go to the Texas book depository, but then they fence off the area where Oswald shot from and they recreate like all the books there, which is kind of cool, but you can kind of get a sense of the shot and the car's coming around a turn, but it has a chance to speed up a little bit. It's an impossible shot. And he had ordered, <laughs> it's like an Italian model, like, uh, single shot like field rifle that he ordered by mail. It wasn't like a sniper <laughs> rifle. So yeah, I mean, if he did it, it was the luckiest shot ever. And if these ever. divers in a in a <laughs> in a pleasure yacht pulled that off, like they have the biggest lungs on yeah. earth. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and it's like you know we we as Americans like you know while that's happening, we have uh, the East Palestine, which. Why is it yeah. East Palestine? It's just such a – the, the a town yeah. in Ohio, yeah. it's so, it's so insane. It Palestine there. Oh, is, is it? Okay. And uh, so it's like they have the, you know, the train uh, train derails, a bunch of what we think are, are, are hazardous chemicals are leaking. Then the, the, op, the, the response to that is to blow that up and – just put a mushroom cloud over a whole city, very uh, Dom DeLillo white noise. And um, then you have the, uh, you know, our, our mutual friend, Jeremy Lafredo just went out there. I was like, you're insane, but go ahead. You know, like you just go straight to the chem. I'd be like, I'm, I'd be like, I told him to mask up like jokingly, but kind of, you know, and like, <laughs> I was like, go, go check it out. Like, Hey man, wear, wear a mask, man. Like, Hey, be careful. And uh, so he goes out there. And like, even he's a little like confused. He's like, yeah, it like seems really bad, but like the people cleaning stuff up aren't wearing any protective gear. 
And, you know, you see stuff, some of the ecosystem belly up in the uh, like frogs and things like that belly up and like some of this stuff happens. But it's like we're almost just like conditioned to stuff like blowing up and lighting on fire. I live in California and it's like earthquakes and stuff lighting on fires. We're just like, hey, that's just going to happen. I hate, I hate to break it to you. And it's like, but this is like it's like Union Pacific Railroad, right? I mean, it's like this is like this is crazy. These type of things like it's just everything's blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh I I would just recommend everyone watch Jeremy's report. Yeah. It was one of the only independent reports that kind of was like a standalone documentary from East Palestine where he would just go up in the gas station or um, in, in repair shops and interview people about what was happening. And they would provide a really detailed account of how everything that was done by Union Pacific was absolutely i'm sorry norfolk southern by norfolk southern was like absolutely the wrong thing to do and that they were being told everything was fine just move on and there was this horrible smell in the air that was burning their lungs and they don't know what will continue what will how that will play out in the long run for their health um for the sustainability of east palestine as a town Many of them are talking about having to move and who is telling them everything was fine. It was an environmental testing group that was literally a front for Norfolk Southern that was being sponsored by the company responsible for this spill that had also been implicated or sued by the Department of Justice for producing uh, phony findings in one of the worst toxic spills in U.S. history. Uh, Jeremy also documented private police who were sponsored by Norfolk Southern trying to keep people away from certain areas. And then, you know, he went to the streams like every other reporter did and just showed hundreds and hundreds of dead frogs and fish and wildlife. I mean, it, it was chilling, Yeah, but it, it took place in a small town that's sort of a sacrifice zone. And we have sacrifice zones across America. Um, so I th it, it was ignored initially. The media yeah. wasn't going out there. The administration didn't want to talk about it. Democrats in Congress didn't want to talk about it. And it really like came down to independent media, local authorities. And then, you know, the, 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 the Trump element started seizing on it because it made the Biden administration look completely neg neglectful. Why? Because where was Biden? No, yeah, he wouldn't go. Yeah. He was meeting Zelensky and having a fake air raid. Like, remember oh, yeah. when he came out with Zelensky and they're holding hands? Yeah. And they put on they they put on an air raid siren, even though there was no air raid. There were no bomb. There was no bombing taking place of Kiev. It was to dramatize the situation, yeah. whereas Americans were horrified about what's happening at home. So it was it perfectly crystallized what we're living through right now, where you have an administration yeah. that clearly cares more about their Ukrainian proxy than they do about the people they're supposed to represent. This was another episode of Gray Zone Radio for Pacifica. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal, and the editor of thegrayzone.com. To see more of our work and sign up for our newsletter, visit thegrayzone.com. That's G-R-A-Y zone.com. This episode was produced by Christopher Weaver. 